0: Welcome to The New Arab's latest webinar, Vaccinating MENA Against COVID-19. Today, I have three experts who have joined us to talk about the challenges created by and related to the COVID-19 pandemic in the Middle East and North Africa, as well as what the vaccine rollout will look like um, in the region. My name is Narjas and I'm a journalist for The New Arab. We are a progressive and diverse London-based news organization covering the MENA region, with a focus on democratic transition, human rights and social and economic justice. So the MENA region has been grappling with the spread of COVID-19 for over a year now, with many recently experiencing a dramatic surge in cases which overwhelmed hospitals and highlighted issues of inequality, as well as shining a light on the inadequacy of some healthcare systems. From Syria to Lebanon, to Algeria, Iran, no country remained unscathed. And with the development of multiple vaccines, the MENA faces challenges of inequality and access related specifically to vaccine distribution. Today I am uh, joined by Professor Fadi El Jadali, um, Medical Dr. Tamam Aluddat, and Dr. Yara Asi. Each of you will have 10 minutes to speak um, before we open up the opportunity for questions. And if you have a question you'd like to ask, um, please click the Q&A button um, below and I will see the question and make sure that it's, um, it's answered. So first we will have Professor Fadi Al is a professor of health systems and policy and founded the Knowledge to Policy Center. He is also director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center for Evidence, Informed Policy and Practice. And co-director of the Center for Systematic Reviews in Health Policy and Systems Research. It's a mouthful. <laughs> so I guess the first um, kind of couple of questions I would like you to answer, Professor Fadis, I guess, what is the state of healthcare systems in the MENA and how have they been challenged in the recent pandemic?
1: thank you so much and welcome everyone and thank you for uh, for having me today in this uh, in this uh, webinar let me start by but just you know b- b- you know briefly mentioning that the the outbreak in fact it, it, it created a lot of a lot of challenges to public health system everywhere and this is not only about meNA region the first thing it really we we've seen that there's many systems that there's a lot of inefficiencies that exist in health system and public health that issue related to the to the uh, to capital Capacities, uh, issues related to accessibilities. Uh, but at the same time, when it comes to, to, uh, to uh, the global contact, we've seen also that our many countries are vulnerable because of the challenges when it comes to production and the supply chain, because of the issues related to, and now what we're seeing in terms of the vaccine, you know, there is a you know, production capacity, how much we can satisfy global demands, including high-income countries, low-income countries, and issues about accessibility of and affordability of vaccines. For instance, for poor countries and the issues about uh, about uh, uh, vaccine nationalism and how we can really try to to uh, counter that and ensure ac- access equity in terms of distribution and and others now I wanted to mention that really we're talking about a pandemic that has been really you know the world has not been prepared to and, and you know and, and the MENA region is no uh, no uh, exception now we what what I wanted to mention that the the uh, so I know that there's a lot of debate now about, about vaccines and, and readiness, but I want to mention that really the, there is a lot of, of areas within the public health system that we need to actually maybe put more more uh, uh, light on this. And one of the things that I think policy consideration that we have to keep in mind, particularly now that we're talking about vaccination, you would see that a lot of debates now changing from, from how to To respond to COVID-19 and now how to really address vaccination. But we've seen many many public health systems, including in the region, issues about about planning, coordination, uh, uh, regulation, Uh, I think it's very important, the issue about the chain management, capacity of the workforce, human resources, uh, funding, and how we can really support resources, particularly high income, low income, uh, 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 health literacy. We've signed a major issue, by the way, and, and this is something that we need. We can discuss more surveillance. So, so what I'm trying to say, there are really fundamental, fundamental challenges that public health system in the region, in the region, was was uh, uh, challenged, uh, challenged, about. Now, the the other thing I want to mention also that that uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, so the first part that yes, many public health systems. In the region were not prepared as any other uh, countries. Some countries are really trying to address some of the inefficiencies and deficiencies by, by doing a swift response and policies and regulation. Other countries are being challenged by limited resources, but I want to mention really that the issue about, about, the, uh, about the race, which is a global race, when it comes to vaccine and, and how we are looking at the uh, vaccine nationalism. I think this is very challenging in MENA countries. Many of the MENA countries are low middle-income countries. They have some challenges. I mean, the Gulf countries aside, but there is really an issue related to the, the, the nationalistic approach to look at, at, uh, uh, at this. Besides, you know, given that there is a lot of political, a uh, political element to that, the issue about vaccine diplomacy, we're starting to see that in our, in our system. And what that means as well to health system uh, capacity but uh, which country is providing vaccine to which country what are the the, uh, you know facilities are really provided we started last year by mass diplomacy mass diplomacy now we're seeing mass, you know uh, vaccine diplomacy china's efforts in terms of of, to frame itself as a solution that's why maybe again doing some arrangement with some of the of the countries that are having some good political relationship with uh, in addition to other western countries so what that means to the region we're seeing that many of the countries and, I, and i'll give you an example of for example in Bahrain, in egypt in in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, Saudi arabia and kuwait uh, you know many of them they already started so they already started the vaccination despite many of the challenges that they have in the health system some other countries are really late even in lebanon we still haven't haven't received even vaccines uh, uh, Morocco still uh, still hasn't received vaccine, and uh, Sudan still not, haven't received vaccine, same thing in, in Syria, same thing in Tunisia, you see there's really quite challenges, and not to say about the type of vaccines ordered, So the type of vaccine ordered can tell you, you know, uh, something about vaccine diplomacy and how Western countries are using it in order to actually provide it. So, so I want to mention one thing about, you know, the equity part. We have an issue about coverage and equity. And, and you will see, if you see wealthy nation, in fact, representing 13% of the world population, have so far already cornered uh, more than 51% of the promises doses of COVID-19 vaccine. More than 51%. So which means that this is really creating a huge, huge uh, inequities. Now, I know... Show and COVID and Gavi is really trying to address that in terms of pooling and resharing, but this is very important. The, the other thing I want to mention about MENA, many MENA countries, uh, they have challenges when it comes to uh, vaccine deployment, whether it's really about the uh, resources that are really there, lack of transparency and communication, health illiteracy. Even many people still know that do we need to take vaccine or not? Is it really beneficial? Is it risky? There is a lot of awareness needed related to that, and the out-of-pocket payments for that, because vaccine is a public good. But I can tell you, the black market already starting to happen in some of the low-middle-income countries. So, so there are. So I wanted just to mention that there are several challenges when it comes to uh, public health systems. Uh, in addition, in addition. What would it take now that governments start paying attention uh, to, to some of the pressing priorities and diseases beyond COVID-19? What's happening now with this crisis in, in the Middle East, most of countries have diverted political and financial attention from other health priorities. And, and we, this is a region that is really a significant burden of diseases to non-communicable diseases and others. And, not, and my worry as well, and this is one of the hidden challenge in public health, that also there's really some, some health priorities and, and, and diseases that are not being really uh, uh, you know, provided the support required despite the, the pandemic. So inequity, a public health infrastructure that is really quite weak, health system that is really quite challenged, a lot of inefficiencies, but at the same time, a lot of focusing on nationalism when it comes to you know, solutions, uh, less solidarity, less cooperation to a certain extent, and 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 more uh, more inequities
0: thank you uh fadi that was um very broad um and extensive um and uh i guess my one quick question before we move on is um what is the role of state and non-state actors in uh vaccine rollout um and maybe a brief example uh in relation to maybe lebanon um but i realize the time is quite short so if you can condense it into maybe 1 minute that would be awesome yeah.
1: so i wanted to say uh, this is a very important question about the state and non state actors many in, in many countries in the MENA region uh, particularly low, income, uh, more, little, uh, low and middle income countries the state is weak the the the, the, the you know it's a fragile and uh, and the governance is weak which means that the non non state actors including the private sectors has a very important role to play now what we've seen from this crisis is that, unfortunately, many of the private sector, they are still seeking profit out of this. And that's why you'll see many private hospitals, even in Lebanon, even yet COVID-19 patients, although they have, they have capacity. So we've seen that instead of have, having a public-private partnership, whether in terms of addressing a COVID-19 response and also in terms of vaccination, we're seeing only contractual arrangements between state and non-state actors. And this worries me because this is where it creates as well a lot of inequities and inefficiencies. And, and I think the pandemic you know, gave us one important lesson that states in the MENA region has to rethink the arrangement when it comes to engaging non, uh, non-state actors, including the private sector and the non-governmental organizations, how they can be real partners in addressing national crises like COVID-19.
0: Thank you very much. Um, thank, you, thank you for that. Um, we're going to come back to vaccine rollout. Um, for now, we have uh, Tamam Aludat, who is a doctor and public health practitioner from Syria, who is currently working with Doctors Without Borders on its MSF Access Campaign, which is making life saving medi- uh, medicines and vaccines available and affordable for people in low resource and crisis situations. Um, he has extensive experience dealing with illnesses um, in conflict areas so I guess my question here is um, why is there an issue with access to medicines and how does it apply to vaccines and maybe if you can also talk about uh, refugees and access to uh, the vaccines in relation to refugees um, for example uh, you know in various parts of uh, MENA that would be great
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me uh, and for giving us the opportunity to discuss vaccines in the region. Um, Let me start by just framing things a little bit. What we do in MSF access campaign is we argue that uh, medicines that are life-saving and essential shouldn't be uh, impossible to access by most of the population of the world. And that is in low and middle income countries or marginalized populations even in high income countries. And well, we've done that with uh, HIV-AIDS, with uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis, uh, malaria, hepatitis E and C, and a host of other diseases, um, and with many vaccines, including pneumococcal vaccine, and, and as is known, pneumonia is still one of the biggest killer of children in the world. So that experience uh, will allow me to frame things in a way. This pandemic has received a massive amount of attention globally by the media by by everybody preservedly it is a huge crisis but um, uh, but but that but almost nothing of the problems that we are facing with this um pandemic or with the uh, issues with the access to medicines is entirely new or even remotely new issues like uh, uh, you know uh, uh, professor fadi talked very aptly about um uh, the world not being prepared, but also about vaccine nationalism and about the health infrastructures not being capable of uh, uh, addressing uh, a disease of this sort. Now, uh, uh, vaccine nationalism and the exclusivity, whether through pricing or availability or monopolies on medicines, has happened and continues to happen with many, va- I mean, with many uh, medicines and vaccines, and this is uh, rarely addressed. Uh, as vigorously as it is now and i would argue that the reason we we struggle to talk about drug resistant tb medicines while we get asked to talk about uh, covid vaccine is Particularly because uh, when Western countries, rich countries, are affected by COVID-19 and are not affected by the other diseases. So this, they start becoming upset and angry. And I was—I'll I'll quote something before I start answering the question uh, from the front page of the CNN, where AstraZeneca has uh, uh, well, gone back on their. Um, promise to uh, sort of supply the european union as fast as they desired and the um, uh, commissioner the health commissioner of the eu uh, indignantly says we are in a pandemic we lost people we lose people every day those are not numbers they are not statistics these are persons with families with friends and colleagues and that is absolutely right and i wish they had the same things to say when outbreaks happen in Poorer countries and have the same eagerness to achieve access and uh, and availability of the drugs and and vaccines. Now, going back to this, um, the world is not prepared, and I agree w- with with Professor Fadi absolutely. Uh, and it's not unprepared because of the unpredictability of the pandemic. The pandemic is absolutely predictable. We've seen uh, the. Um, H1N1 in 2009. Since 2005, there was an H5N1. Admittedly, both are influenza uh, um, outbreaks. But there has been extensive work on pandemic preparedness for the past 15 years. To reach this stage and be this unprepared is uh, is mind-boggling. That aside, there are a few things that are specific. Most of the vaccines that are available now or becoming available now, have benefited from massive amounts of public funding. They have been paid for by taxpayers, at least a large part of the cost of development. And yet, we are facing a situation where we have to beg and plead with pharmaceutical companies to make their vaccines available at reasonable prices. We are asking them to make it available at cost. So the price of the vaccine doesn't become a barrier for its uh, uh, access. However, only a couple of companies promised that. And even those who promised it get, do not give us information about their cost of production or about licensing and sub-licensing agreements. So we'd actually be able to judge. And even the companies that have boasted a lot about um, uh, Paying uh, for for no profit, um, have given themselves an agreement like AstraZeneca the power to declare the pandemic finished by July two thousand twenty one. Uh, so they are they confined themselves to um, selling at price for the duration of the pandemic, but guaranteed that they can finish it regardless of what happens in the real world. But on the other hand, Pfizer and and um, uh, and Moderna have made no commitment for. Uh, uh, reduce prices or or selling at cost, which is one of the things. The other is obviously transparency. The third is, uh, is sub-licensing. We cannot expect the limited amount of production capacity that is available for those companies to cover the whole world. Hence, of the 9 billion doses or so needed, there will be a fraction available by the end of the year. And that's if we're optimistic, because as of yesterday... AstraZeneca is unable to even fulfill the demand of the European Union. So we're not even talking about the MENA or about Latin America or about Southeast Asia or sub-Saharan Africa. We're talking EU cannot get enough doses. And yet we cannot ask uh, companies um, to uh, make the knowledge, the know-how and the technical capacity available freely for other institutions to be able to produce um, the vaccines. Now, All that aside, I think there are a a couple of issues before I overtake my time. There are a couple of issues that are important to Uh, Judge uh, that are related to the MENA region specifically. And and we have different circumstances. In in our region, we have a double burden of disease. We have a lot of infections, hence child mortality uh, and morbidity, uh, and uh, uh, weak health systems in especially the lowest or emergency affected areas. But we also have the lifestyle diseases and the chronic conditions that have uh, been quite uh, invasive. Um, Unlike Europe, uh, life expectancy, of people who die of heart disease or, or lung disease isn't eighty five; it's it hovers around sixty five. So people die much earlier, which means we have a higher population who have what is called you know pre existing conditions, which increases their risk for the um, COVID. We also have uh, large uh, populations affected by emergencies, and 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 those were mentioned: Libya, Syria, Iraq, uh, uh, Yemen, and and. Uh, uh, others, but you also have uh, uh, countries that have been affected secondarily by those emergencies where, you know, you have the large number of Syrian refugees in Lebanon and Jordan, you have um, Sudan and, and, and places who, that, are, that are affected by chronic underdevelopment, malnutrition and, and poverty. So that takes a toll on the health system and those health systems can scarcely be expected to cope with a massive vaccination campaign with a vaccine they don't know across fighting lines and crisis lines and and with populations that might and i i would say you know not unjustifiably have, have other concerns if people can't eat and can't protect themselves from bombs and bullets you can hardly threaten them with the you know tortures of the of of the pandemic um so there is a, a set of circumstances that makes it very difficult. Now, that adds to that is the logistical difficulties with the vaccine. And, you know, some of the vaccines can be retained and, and distributed at normal temperatures, but others can't. And, and especially the mRNA vaccines, the, uh, the um, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines require hypercooling, which is Going to be difficult in the richest countries to retain the hypercooling up to the peripheral level where the vaccines are, and it's nearly impossible anywhere else. So there's a, a real logistical challenge, and um, that that disfavors countries uh, that that do not have the resources to sustain it. Um, I will mention a couple of things. One is that there is the you know um, that was mentioned that Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, has created you know, the COVAX facility, which is supposed to avail uh, 2 billion doses by the end of 2021. This is massively optimistic. And there is plenty of discussion about whether, you know, COVAX will at all be able to do that. And that worries us. The other one is about what is called the humanitarian buffer. So there's supposed to be 2 billion doses um, no, sorry, a different number. I, I'm not entirely sure the number now. Uh, that of those available for humanitarian settings, there's not yet a mechanism that allows an impartial distribution for those according to need. I'll stop here. I'll be happy to answer any questions you might have later. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much. Um, there's certainly, yeah, so many challenges um, in term- and in terms of inequality across the board. Um which we'll get we will get back to um, to talk about that in in just a moment. Um, so finally, we have Dr. Yara Asi who is a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Central Florida, and is a U.S. Fulbright scholar to the West Bank. Her research agenda focuses on global health and development in fragile and conflict affected populations, and she has presented at multiple national and international com- security. Um, general health and women in healthcare. Uh, Dr. Yara, with your regional focus, how pandemic, given a pre-existing healthcare system that's been depleted uh, by decades of occupation, and also how has Israel made it hard for Palestinians to respond to the pandemic, uh, including... Are
2: we all frozen or is... uh... I think we uh, same here. Since we're we're live, how about how about Yara? You start answering while uh, Narjas sure. is to come back.
3: Yes, uh, hopefully she comes back soon. Yeah, so. Um, I, I think I, I, I understand the gist of her question specifically about um, vaccinations in the Palestinian territories and Israel's responsibility to do so. So um, thank you to Narjas and to the Sorry narrator. about that. I don't know how much you've got. Uh, my internet broke up. Oh, it's the okay. It's oh, okay. Sorry. I'll, I'll just did you get my questions? And- yes, I did. <laughs> okay. Please continue. So I think I think Palestine makes a really great case study to examine in detail some of the issues that my colleagues have been discussing, you know, more broadly across the region. Um, so. For your uh, viewers who are a little less familiar with the on the ground reality there, I thought I would start by discussing the basics of the Palestinian health system prior to COVID-19 because I think it provides some really important context. So after decades of occupation by first the Ottomans then the British, Jordan, Egypt, and then now Israel starting in 1967, there really was no formal health system in the Palestinian territories. Uh, With the Oslo Accords in the mid 1990s, the Palestinian Authority was established and with it, the Palestinian Ministry of Health. So it's it's quite a young agency. Along with this agency, you have other health providers for Palestinians, such as the private sector for Palestinians who can afford it, uh, UNRWA for registered refugees and NGOs that provide various services to usually distinct populations. So it's a very fragmented health system in general. So there's large areas of overlap And then there's large gaps in coverage, especially for poor Palestinians, those living in rural parts of the West Bank and essentially for all in the Gaza Strip. So while health indicators have increased in the past several decades, as we've seen across less developed countries, um, the Palestinian Authority has been successful in some public health efforts like basic vaccinations, but every analysis of this health system emphasizes the significant barriers posed by blockade and occupation. So it's important to emphasize here that Palestine is not a state. Uh, It was recognized as a non-member observer state by the UN in 2012. This is the same status afforded to the Vatican. It does not have control of its borders. It does not have an autonomous government. And the Palestinians are subject to Israeli movement restrictions on all goods and people, even travel within the West Bank is tightly monitored and constricted checkpoints, the separation wall, the settlement infrastructure, etc. So nothing, not even medical supplies enters the West Bank or Gaza Strip without approval from and coordination with Israel. At the beginning of the pandemic, this was even true for ventilators and testing kits that were being donated by humanitarian actors. Um, Palestinians are not permitted to build an airport, so they cannot import medical goods or the vaccine directly. And with um, budget shortfalls and electricity cuts, they don't have the cold storage facilities we were just talking about that are needed to store these very delicate vaccines, I think with the exception of maybe one facility in Jericho. Um, The largest component of the PA, the Palestinian Authority's budget, which is, of course, very dependent on foreign aid, is security coordination with Israel and more than double the amount that is set aside for public health. So I say this to make clear that these issues have existed for as long as most Palestinians have been alive. And so when COVID-19 entered the picture, no one should have been surprised by the outcomes we've seen. Um, So despite statements by some Israeli ministers and legal scholars, it's also important to note that almost every international body and state, including Israel's own Supreme Court, continues to recognize that the West Bank and Gaza Strip are occupied by Israel. Um, So this brings us into, of course, the Fourth Geneva Convention, which mandates responsibilities of an occupying power towards an occupied population. And these are broad obligations and burdensome obligations because, right, military occupation is not supposed to last 50, 60 years. Um, This includes specific provisions for public health, hygiene, medical supplies, and these duties are not displaced by humanitarian aid and no agreement between the occupied and the occupying power removes these protections. So the the main uh, justification I hear about um, that the PA should be fully responsible for this is of course the Oslo Accords, one of these agreements. Um, Often they're referring to Article 17, which regards health, which states quite broadly that powers and responsibilities of health will be transferred to the Palestinian side and that the Palestinian side will apply the present standard of vaccination to Palestinians, um, which they have done. Yet even if one were to assume the faulty premise, in my opinion, and the opinion of many legal scholars, that the Oslo Accords does supersede the Geneva Conventions, examination of the Oslo Accords itself and the specifics refers one to a routine vaccination chart that includes hepatitis B, DPT, polio, MMR, other basic vaccines afforded to almost all children across the world Um, with regard to pandemics and epidemics specifically the two parties must coordinate and further, uh, of course, politically, it's important to note that the Oslo Accords again signed in the mid 1990s was meant to be part of an interim agreement that would lead to a political settlement within five years, and this has admittedly not occurred, I think to say the least. Um, Another justification offered for the lack of Israeli coordination is that the PA didn't ask. So I find this interesting for a few reasons. One, I can't think of any other legal obligation that is dependent on the non-dominant party asking for compliance. And two, we all knew in April of last year of 2020, that we would need a vaccine to get out of this lockdown cycle. So, coordination efforts between Israel and the PA should have started then. If Israel had offered in earnest to work with the PA and the PA rejected this, then the PA should be criticized. Um, indeed, you know, conflicting statements and press releases from the Palestinian Authority, uh, various members has um, painted a really confusing picture to global audiences. So just as Israel does not get to pick and choose its legal obligations, nor does the PA, the PA's existence is justified by the Oslo Accord. So that puts it in a strange position in wanting to both posture as a functional government, but under a reality where they don't have the funds, power or control over their state to actually serve as one. Um, and let's also remember that Palestinians have not voted for their leadership in nearly t- 15 years. And public polls have shown for many years that Palestinians are not happy with their leadership. So the lack of any positive change in this conflict since Oslo makes clear you know, why this is the case. Um, so now with the specifics of COVID, You know, Israel is reporting that it's vaccinated nearly 30% of its population. This far outpaces any other country on earth, including the UK, Germany, France, the US, across the board. And in fact, they're moving to vaccinate 16 to 18 year olds now to allow them to return for school for exams. Um, Meanwhile, the latest reporting that I've seen, and this may have changed, indicates that Palestinians have only received 100 doses total so far. They're waiting uh, for a donation from Russia from its vaccine, Um, and they have worked out deals with other pharmaceutical companies and through the COVAX program that we just heard. But a week ago, the Palestinian Minister of Health said she hoped the vaccines would arrive quote, in the first quarter of the year. So no real date on when the vaccines are coming. And the COVAX shipments um, are not expected to arrive until mid-year, so that would put us in the summer. So this is in the context of more than 176,000 cases and nearly 2,000 deaths throughout the Palestinian territories. Um, The World Bank estimates that the Palestinian GDP could dip by up to 35% as a result of this virus. Health officials throughout the Gaza Strip and the West Bank have been warning of imminent collapse, overwhelm, burnout, um, and overwhelmed facilities for months. So, you know, an additional month, two months, six months of waiting for a vaccine, this is not an abstract issue. This could bring the Palestinians to a situation that will be extremely difficult to recover from, you know, to say the least. Especially because you consider the typical donors who buoy the Palestinian Authority, they're also under tremendous financial pressure domestically, and there's many global funding priorities right now. Every low-income country needs help, you know, it's, it's not a, a focus on anyone. Um, thus far, the United Nations, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, progressive and liberal politicians throughout the US and the UK and human rights groups within Palestine and Israel have called on Israel to start vaccination efforts with Palestinians. And this is in Israel's best interest as well if we're being pragmatic. Um, Aside from the Israeli settlers and soldiers that are throughout the West Bank stationed, living there, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians enter Israel every day to work as day laborers, primarily in the construction sector. Um, in fact, some of the first cases in the West Bank were associated with those who crossed the border into Israel. There's no disconnecting the populations, and COVID-19 does not care about one's legal status. Um, so I will end there and leave room for questions, but hopefully I covered uh, most of, of the topics, so thank you so much.
0: Yes, thank you so much uh, for, that, for that incredible answer. Um, so we're going to open it up to questions. Um, and I've got a few here already. I guess the first question is directed at Professor uh, Fadi. What are some of the um, policy considerations for vaccine rollout? And also, um, can you also mention, you've all touched on delivery challenges a little bit, but if you can maybe give concrete examples, concrete country examples of um, delivery challenges related to the vaccine rollout. Um, And if if at any time Yara or uh, Tamam, you have um, something to say, by all means, you can interject. Just unmute yourself, um, and we can really get like a nice discussion going. I guess, um, yeah.
1: Sure. So, so uh, thank you. Uh, so, let me just uh, you yeah, uh, know quickly just mention before I go to question, if you allow me. And I think one, I any mean, based on what what the, I think from the three interventions, I, I just wanted to mention that I think we're witnessing we're witnessing you know uh, more of a of a, a a moral failure at the at the global governance when it comes to you know uh, to health and public health and I, and we've seen it at different levels. i think uh, you know dr Tamman mentioned very clearly in terms of you know pharmaceutical companies how i mean the whole model of research and development even failed uh, the r&d system how we do that how we fund pharma Pharma, uh, uh, you know, you know, if, even if you look at at, at SARS and and, and MERS uh, before, even a, Ebola and Zika and the vaccine that stopped later on because there was no demand. I mean, the the uh, the uh, the SARS and MERS and the argument that if we continue, we, if we continued at that time to invest in 2015, 2016, would have been at a better stage of actually being ready for for a better vaccine. I mean. So, so the model, the pharma model, also there is a, but also there is a failure at the level exactly what what Dr. Yara mentioned when it comes to, as I mentioned, the you know vaccine nationalism, how we're thinking about it, and how we are really it's in in, in, uh, in the issue about equity and access and and uh, discrimination, I would say is really very clear. So I wanted to mention there is a molly and at the level of international organization, whether whether a UN institution and other, they, they have really a certain challenge of actually bringing everybody when it comes to global solidarity around that. Now, when you go to the question about the, about the policy consideration, I think one of the, one, and it, the policy consideration differs whether this is really a high income country and a low income country. I think this is, we have to do but if we want to go into the details, and I tell you, one of the men, one of what we have seen, for example, the case of Lebanon, that in fact Lebanon was not ready even to sign with Pfizer, that there was no legislation or law that in fact addressed liability. And Pfizer put it as a condition we will not send vaccine to Lebanon up until we have a legislation or law that actually more, more addressed the issue about liability which means that the Lebanon, the government of Lebanon, should take responsibility for any side effects that will come from vaccine that gets at the level of experimental vaccine, particularly at the level of phasing. So that's, that's the issue about legislation, with, with the, the issue about the, how we will actually address and how we gonna, who's going to get vaccinated first or not. And the criteria is being used. I tell you there is some differences across countries related to that. The issue about storage capacities in the country when it comes to Pfizer, how much in terms of, of uh, storage, in terms of temperature uh, versus Moderna, versus other, other type of vaccine, this is also an issue. The issue about who's gonna actually more of, a, of oversee the whole deployment uh, process in a country that is really quite weak in terms of infrastructure. What is the, the fate of the remaining population that is not part of the uh, phase one uh, uh, vaccination? How are we gonna address vulnerable people, underserved areas, uh, refugees? This is also a big issue about it. How are we gonna protect the public from the black market and the, and the side deals? So, so there's a lot of policy consideration. The, I think the issue here is that how we want to have to, to make sure that we have a good political re- leadership leadership. At the global level and at the country level to counter the issue about uh, you know uh, you know vaccine nationalism but at the same time to make sure that we have fair equitable distribution and deployment of vaccines and reaching out to those people that are really required to be vaccinated mm-hmm. i mean we mentioned uh, uh, dr yara mentioned about israel and the percentage how much we have in terms of vaccination and in fact if you look at uh, who are who are they vaccinating uh, they are vaccinating even age group that is not a priority now to be vaccinated. And this is very important. At the same time, the trade-off that there are other vulnerable people, a certain age group that have chronic diseases that are elderly, they are supposed to be given the priority uh, in comparison. So there's a big big trade-off here. And this is the issue about about equity and inequity. And that's why I'm I'm saying we have a moral, moral failure, ethical failure.
0: Thank you, uh, Fadi. We've got another question here for Yara. Can wealthy Arab states or UN organizations do more to bring the vaccine to Palestinians?
3: Um, hmm. I, I suppose the answer is yes, but we have to remember, A, you know, nationalism is real and so they're going to prioritize their own citizens. And B, you know, I know the PA has been reaching out to all its usual donors and uh, you know the, the the infrastructure that has supported them in the past. But regardless, everything again that enters Palestinian land must be coordinated with and approved by Israel. So even these um, efforts where the PA is trying to exercise some autonomy, even in receiving donations, they ultimately don't have the final say. And then the logistic issues that you bring up will not be you know these these are issues that needed to be addressed decades ago how do you get to rural villages in the west bank how do you get the approvals to enter the gaza strip the gaza strip has no cold storage facilities how, so what do we have to bring in vaccines and you know do masters distribution the same day um you know the getting the vaccine in the country is one problem but then you have the existing public health infrastructure. And unfortunately, there's nothing these external states can do except for push for, um, you know, an end, a political, a just political resolution to this conflict. And that won't happen in time for adequate distribution, unfortunately.
0: Thank you for that. Um, I have one question for uh, Tamam. Uh, And I guess this kind of feeds into uh, what Yara was saying about um, maybe the role of, the UN but also what would you say is the role if any of humanitarian agencies in vaccine rollout in relation to you know things like the humanitarian buffer for vaccines um if you can talk about that in relation to particular countries in in the MENA region that would be really good uh
2: yes thank you there are many inaccessible populations affected by emergencies in the MENA region. So, And here, let's let's just mention something clearly. Of course, the known and acknowledged humanitarian actors are usually UN agencies and uh, large international NGOs. In, in, in the MENA region, we have seen over the past decade now, many, many national and local NGOs or groups or um ...entities that have provided a large part of the humanitarian and medical action, especially in the most of conflict affected areas. So if it wasn't for them, it, the access by international humanitarian agencies is, is severely restricted. The other thing is about displacement. And, and and of course, we talk about the refugees because we understand the numbers of the refugees, and, uh, and, and they are spoken about quite vigorously because they are in other countries. Um, However, we know um, quite well that the health circumstances of internally displaced populations in conflict settings is much worse. In the best of days, no pandemic included, so mortality goes up to three times in internally displaced populations than it is in. And this is those are systematic reviews of uh, across the globe with with uh, w- w- with multiple emergencies, well, and and those are hardly mentioned. And this corresponds to the whole situation in this pandemic where um, uh, the more vulnerable populations are, the least they are mentioned and considered. So that being the case, uh, humanitarian organizations have a very difficult time being able to actually be a provider of vaccination because of the scarcity of the vaccine and because the bidding wars that are happening between countries doesn't make it very possible for there are, it's not a market that is open where where vaccines can be bought and taken and second in an emergency this size it's it's not really open to the argument of let everybody do whatever they want there is a level of coordination by governments that has to be assumed and followed so even if we have in msf chosen uh, uh, multiple times in the past to intervene in specific populations affected by emergencies with specific interventions, that doesn't exactly apply here. Neither the logistical circumstances, nor the specific needs, nor the 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 uh, you know moral or or or, or uh, humanitarian prerogative allow us to overcome you know brush aside the, the the greater coordination. However, what we're asking for is that the COVAX uh, facility uh, and the humanitarian buffer are available in a way that achieves a level of equity. And secondly, that we do not just, um, you know, dilute ourselves by saying that, you know, the humanitarian buffer is going to be a solution. It is one of the possible solutions, but they... Um, humanitarian buffer isn't going to be enough vaccines neither would it guarantee an infrastructure that allows uh, effective implementation and here comes back to that you know in the end of the day there's a moral failure yes absolutely however a moral failure almost implicitly says that there was a moral desire to succeed and that can be argued quite vigorously because I don't think when when you know um, in Arabic, we say, when, when, you know, when, when, when the water reached their knees, uh, none, of, none of the Western powers appeared or acted uh, in a way that tells us that they are interested in um, protecting the lives and, and availability for uh, poor countries. And, and, you know, all the rhetoric aside, of course, they came up with this um, uh, um, uh, global public good argument. Which is interesting and may come from a good place, but it's very difficult to uh, argue and prove. It's a very specific economic concept that d- doesn't exactly apply here. And we're sitting and arguing about semantics when you know, vaccine is actually not reaching. When we have a possible solution that is legally possible, logistically possible, like a, a waiver that was demanded by India and South Africa on the intellectual property of vaccines and medicines related to. Uh, COVID-19, uh, uh, it is vigorously opposed mostly by rich countries who, want, who care more, who appear to care more about protecting the profit of their companies than they are about protecting lives in poorer countries. So it, it's, it's a moral failure. It's a logistical difficulty. It's a pandemic. It's not, it's not never going to be easy to handle. But what has started as a a promise of you know the, the pandemic was called an equalizer in the early days it has proven to deepen all the inequities and all the oppressions and and, and difficulties faced by uh, many poorer populations we finally i i will say one thing uh, we might see or might not see an overcoming of that moral failure we might see a production that guarantees uh, uh, some coverage for populations especially populations that, that we, we serve as MSF in Yemen and Syria and Iraq and Libya and uh, Jordan, Lebanon and so on. Um, and and I will just re-emphasize here, that doesn't take away from the fact that there are health issues that are unaddressed, there are fragile health systems that are unsupported, mm-hmm. and that those all will have been amplified massively inside this pandemic we don't even know how much because the numbers aren't because no one is paying attention enough to other health issues we have had a cholera outbreak in Yemen just a year ago we've had multiple outbreaks of other diseases and uh, peaks in infections and mortality in other Arab countries uh, especially those affected by emergencies. and we will have to reckon with all that quite soon Mm -hmm. and 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 we will add surprise then, which is unjustified. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, We've got another question here. This one is for Professor Fadi. Um, Could the new administration in the US move things in a different direction globally um, with the return to uh, the World Health Organization and maybe COVAX as well?
1: Well, certainly, you know, uh, with the new administration, what we have seen so far since last week, there's really quite quite a radical dramatic uh, type of uh, uh, policy making uh, or policy decisions that are being made since uh, since integration. So we're happy to see that. We're happy that the U.S. is going back and uh, working with the we're seeing many of those uh, those decisions unfortunately uh, ill informed decisions i would say that were done uh, during the trump administration are being reversed at this stage so but it's too i think it's too early to to uh, to uh, to know whether this will have a really quite a positive impact at the time of crisis you know at the time of crisis i think one of the you know you need to actually bring all the efforts together you need to to support and you need to have a global solidarity something that we haven't seen so far So it's really too early to judge whether the the new administration will be able to, I think the new administration has a lot of challenges now internally within the US because this whole COVID COVID crisis was mismanaged. Uh, In fact, there was a lot of infodemic, there was a lot of, of manipulation of facts. And it's interesting that, you know, coming from President Biden in the immigration speech when he said that, we will give power to the science and we will actually give power to the facts and we will not accept manipulated facts uh, from, the, from now on when it comes to dealing with, with health, uh, addressing COVID-19. So it seems to me the priority for, for the U.S. administration now is actually internally within the U.S., but certainly I see I'm very optimistic uh, and some of the decisions that have been made, uh, uh, you know, last week, uh, since last week, is quite promising, uh, uh, but we, it, it's too early to actually to, to see the result of that.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, We've got one question for Yara. Is Gaza and West Bank coordinating more on health despite the political schism? Well,
3: you know, it's uh, so. So, you know, in recent weeks, they've been announcing some forms of reconciliation uh, ahead of some a very abruptly announced elections, which you know we'll see how that goes. Um, you know what's interesting is that in a lot of the PA, the Palestinian Authority statements, there's very little mention of Gaza or coordination with Hamas, which is the governing body of the Gaza Strip. Um, even with the uh, Russian uh, donation of their vaccine, you know, while there were certain permissions that had to be uh, approved to get it into the West Bank, even higher approval from the Israeli prime minister's office is needed to get those into the Gaza Strip. So, um, I mean, the PA has very, very little role in that. I mean, the PA is struggling in its own territory. Um, I, 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 I mean, I hope that there's some form of, of of political um reconciliation but again you know when you have these decades of political problems they are not going to be fixed in days or weeks in time for i mean the pandemic is happening it's been happening for 10 months so um again without without a political settlement, a political resolution to the entirety of the conflict, the PA is admittedly very limited in what it can do in Gaza. I'm sure, you know, there's always behind the scenes negotiations between the three parties, the PA, Israel and Gaza that are not made public because we see the outcomes of them, especially when there's active conflict. Um, but public statements have still made the, the two territories seem quite separate, um, which is really worrying for the Gaza Strip. Uh, because they are, you know, 50% unemployment, very high poverty, very high food insecurity, again with all the vaccine distribution issues. um, And the PA is just not the authority that is able to manage or handle those crises.
0: Thank you. Um, There's a question here um, for Tamam: Are Russian Chinese vaccines an alternative uh, in the region? Um, and also maybe touch on kind of vaccine diplomacy examples and the challenges related to related to that as well
2: so um are they an alternative uh, uh, you'll have two two issues to to this question one of them is are they effective do they work and the other is are they available can be, can they be brought in and for the first one um uh, there, there, you know, there are trials that are ongoing on the latest, sta- later stages on all vaccines. None of the trials is conclusive, and just to be clear, none of the existing vaccines, American, German, uh, British, or or Russian, would have been approved has there been no pandemic. They are all approved on exceptional emergency basis for use in pandemics, which is a normal process. It's not, it's nothing to scoff at, and there's a lot of data on them. Um, there is, um, <clears throat> there is a there is a lot of um, politically motivated rhetoric on all sides. If you read the news that you know with, in Arabic, and funny enough, in Arabic we have a lot of news that affiliate or some empathize with different sides of of the uh, global geopolitics. You'd you'd have different opinions depending on what which websites you read. There is uh, there are trials that are uh, all of them. Uh, do not provide data that is publicly available and completely transparent. So, what I would say is, they, they, they I don't know that any of them is worse than any of the others, and hence scientifically, uh, having a vaccine that is undergoing trials, that it, there is some publication, some sharing of data, is almost certainly better than not having a vaccine. Now. Are they available? Can be made? Can can they be? And there is plenty that is happening. Uh, to my understanding, for example, the UAE and Bahrain are providing uh, um, uh, sinovax and Bahrain has actually, uh, sorry, the United the Arab Emirates has uh, mentioned manufacturing it uh, nationally with uh, with a uh, sub license from from the Chinese company. So yes, there is a movement towards providing them. Um, there, there there are. Some confusions because, like most countries, uh, governments are buying um, the vaccines that are available. So there's not necessarily a consistency per country of what vaccine is available. And in some cases, my understanding is people get to almost choose whether they want the Pfizer or the Sinovax or so on. So it's that's difficult. It's it's hard to expect people to know what to choose in a situation like this. I wouldn't know what to choose. I'd rather have a a, a consistent policy a, by, by a government that has all, all the data they have. Now, are they available? To some extent, yes. Uh, all of them are uh, subject to manufacturing, to logistics, but also the desires of the companies. I'm and sorry, the I'm just going to
0: jump in and give you a yes. time uh um, yes. can, so twenty seconds sorry this
2: is this is a very difficult to answer question because there's nothing certain about it i think my bottom line is when people can be vaccinated they should be vaccinated the vaccine hesitancy and the rumors of the fa- you know the facts or fake fake facts and all that are going to be at risk for hesitancy that is unnecessary and potentially dangerous. Sorry yeah. for my public.
0: No, not, not at all. It's, I, I could. No, no
2: worries. I, I do that. That's a
0: lot of time. No, it's fine. Um, we've got two more questions. So I'm just going to ask both of them and then uh, leave the answers to you, the, you guys. The first one is for Professor Fadi. Um, so Lebanon's healthcare systems have been particularly challenged due to several unrelated emergencies, including uh, COVID. Um, And so the question here is, uh, what are some of the pressures uh, the government face in Lebanon? And then Yara, there is a question here about Palestinian refugees outside of Palestine and how they're being looked after. So maybe if we go with Professor Fadi first and then Yara.
1: So unfortunately, Lebanon was hit hard by so many different crises, not only by, by COVID-19 with the Beirut explosion, with the devaluation of the currency, with the economic and the political instability, a lot, unfortunately, of challenges was crippled, in fact, the government uh, uh, of Lebanon. And, and, uh, and we know Lebanon is a weak state when it comes to governance, and there's a predominance of the private sector. So some of the challenges that we have is that we have poor infrastructure and the public health system a limited investment done over the last many years i think they made the wrong political choice of not investing in public hospitals and we have in fact more than 80 percent of the beds in hospital beds in lebanon is really private sector the challenge that government is facing is that you know how to engage in a in a in a uh, in an effective way with the private sector, private sector has been seeking profit for many years, and they are not really in a quite clear uh, at the same, at the same uh, level when it comes to part- partnering with government to address the crisis so this is really one of the challenges. second challenge is the poor capacity and the mil- limited number of beds the third unfortunately the issue about health Ill- literacy or illiteracy and the poor compliance of people when it comes to lockdown on strict measures that 's why we 're seeing Significant uh, 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 surges. So, so I, I, you know, the challenge really how we can get from this political, political and economic challenge that we have to have a country that have the real leadership in order to address critical, urgent issues when it comes to access and capacity and and, uh, and responsiveness. That's that's a challenge that we're living it uh, in day by day.
0: Thank you, Professor Badi.
3: Uh... And I'll keep my answer very short. Um, To my knowledge, no Palestinian refugee has received the vaccine yet. We know Jordan is the first country to have started vaccinating refugees. In general, Jordan of Lebanon, Syria, and the surrounding countries where Palestinian refugees are generally treats them better, has given them citizenship, um, in general, they're treated quite poorly. Uh, they're stateless in Lebanon. The camps are very overcrowded, low water, low hygiene, very hard to social distance. So I, I believe the first refugees that Jordan vaccinated were from Iraq. Um, so, you know, the, the refugee question, I think we could have a whole other webinar about who's going to vacc, who's going to assume responsibility for vaccinating refugees. But for, from, from my knowledge, no Palestinian refugees yet.
0: Thank you, Yara. We've got sorry one one more question. I'm going to squeeze it in, uh, Professor Fadi. Are um, civil society organisations doing anything about the uh, the challenges you spoke of before in Lebanon?
1: Yeah, so, uh, this is one of the major sectors that, unfortunately, there, there is a lot of untapped potential. Uh, I think the key that we've learned from this crisis of how we can uh, unlock the potential of the civil society groups. Uh, civil society and the uh, uh, non-governmental organization uh, are playing an extremely important role in terms of trying to address some of the unmet, unmet uh, services or, or address some of the deficiencies and dysfunction the state has. The challenge that there are many of them are ill-resourced, ill-equipped. They depend on, on soft money and they are not really a part, uh, part and an important player in the health system and the public health system arrangement. Something that we need to keep in mind in Lebanon in, in terms of strategic uh, vision, that the COVID-19 help us realize that, you know, the state is, cannot, cannot meet all the needs of people, how we can tap into the potential of private sector, civil society groups, NGOs, and others, in order to bring them together and make more of a, of a, you know, a, a coordinated partnership that, that can can address all the uh, required services and needs for poor people unfortunately a huge potential for our for our NGOs and civil society groups but we need even to better support them and equip them and make them part and parcel of the arrangement
0: a very quick and condensed uh, answer you still answered it wonderfully um, this is the end of, uh, of our webinar um, it's been incredible listening to everyone talk about um, the kind of Monumental challenges faced by uh, not only the world but the MENA region, um, and how different countries will attempt to um, sort out, I guess, uh, all of the health issues uh, related to COVID. Um, thank you so much for coming um, onto Zoom. Um, it's been it's been great, and hopefully we will reconvene at some point in the near future where we can hopefully talk about something. To do with positive vaccine rollout <laughs> in the coming months um it's been great uh, i will thank see you. you soon thank you very thank much you. Thank, thank you for us. So thank you having much thank you very much for bye having everyone
2: you.